0: I'm Christina and I'm Megan and welcome to our podcast cool fun fact a podcast all about cool fun facts listeners we would love to hear from you please send in your topic suggestions to cool fun at gmail.com
1: hello Christina how are you doing today
0: I'm doing good. How
1: are you? I am doing pretty well myself. I apologize uh, for the fact that my cat is probably going to be having a little bit of a freak out in the background. She is a hungry girl today, even though it is not it's not feeding time. So anyone who has a cat can sympathize with um,
0: the meows you may or may not hear. So I apologize in advance. That's a-okay. You know what? Just She does something funny. You got to tell us. That's all I ask.
1: Yes, definitely. Um, For all of those out there listening, I have a cat and a dog, so I get the best and worst of both worlds, I guess you could say, by having um, both species under one roof. For the most part, it's a good time, but you know, some days... Anyone who owns a cat can sympathize. It's just rough. Like We just brought in a live Christmas tree earlier today. And we've never had a live Christmas tree before. So it's going to be interesting to see on the camera that we have pointed at the Christmas tree. Whether or not our cat decides that it's a new climbing accessory in our house. So we're going to keep the ornaments off of it for a couple of days. To, to see if she doesn't think that this is a new toy she gets to climb. Because, um,
0: yeah, I don't want a bunch of broken Christmas ornaments, so. (laughs) Oh, dude, I'm already past you on that one. So we get a live Christmas tree every single year. I actually grew up with having live Christmas trees in my house. And my husband agreed. He's like, the only way to do Christmas is a live Christmas tree. So that is our tradition, is going to the store and picking out a live Christmas tree. So, of course, we get our live Christmas tree from the store. We set it up and everything. I put lights on it and everything. And we start putting on ornaments. And for all of you who don't know, I have a one-year-old. And he really, really, really enjoys the ornaments, especially taking them off the Christmas tree. So, you'll just see him walking around with these fistfuls of these ornaments and I thought they were plastic, but I guess they're a glass substance. So when he drops them, mommy gets to pick up shattered ornaments. Good thing they don't like shatter like glass where it goes everywhere, it kind of is more consolidated. At least those are like the least expensive ornaments and the ornaments I don't care about. But yeah, I, I get to deal with that on a not a regular basis, but a semi regular basis. It makes me laugh, though. Yeah. So we just make sure that if he does drop it, we put him in a different room and we clean it all up.
1: Yeah. Does that make you feel like next year you're going to have to invest in some plastic ornaments for the tree? I,
0: I think so. I already told my husband about that. It might not be next year. It might be, you know, after Christmas that we invest in some plastic ornaments. Yeah. That's honestly the best time
1: to, like, go out and, like, if you want a new, like, if you do do artificial trees... Last year we bought ours after Christmas because of where we lived. You just couldn't really get live trees. So we just bit the bullet and bought one. So we got a really nice tree, like way discounted. And then this year is the first year that we'll have a live tree. And it was so cool because we got to go to this um, tree farm that was near our current house and had no idea it even existed. And it's right off the road. I literally drive by it every single day to go to work. And it's like a legit farm. Like you hack down the tree like you go out you pick the tree and you saw it down and then you take it off to your car so um i think that's a new tradition while we live over here that we're going to do every year is to go pick out a cute tree that has a little bit of spunk to it but to sympathize with what you were saying, our dog, actually, we figured this out when we went home last year for Christmas at my parents' house. My mom always has this beautifully decorated tree with glass ornaments. Well, we left one day and we left our dog out because she's normally totally fine came back she had tried to eat a bunch of these glass ornaments. I had to sit there and pull glass out of her mouth. We had to take all the glass ornaments off the bottom of the tree and now thankfully I had not really gotten to the point where I was investing in a lot of glass ornaments before, but now only the top of the tree can have glass ornaments and anything that is at nose level for our dog or lower, we have to put plastic ornaments because it was, it was terrible. Like she just bite down on them. Like she thought it was an apple or something. I had to pull glass oh like gosh. shards out of her, of her mouth and she cut her gums. It was oh terrible. Like I never thought she'd take them off the tree. So Yeah, needless to say, if you have a cat or a dog like mine who thinks that eating ornaments is normal, uh, you can only have plastic in your house. Because, yeah, I thought the cat would be the biggest worry. It was not the cat. It was the dog last year. This year, with a live tree, I think it's more so the cat. But I'm hoping by having her cat tower closer, which is slightly taller than the tree, it may offset wanting to climb said tree but 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 we will see. But everything on the the Christmas tree this year is going to be not breakable ornaments because I'm not going to relive last year because that was just terrifying in so many ways and then I owed my mother a bunch of brand new glass like balls and it was it was a
0: whole thing and uh 10 out of 10 do not recommend. So Yeah, I I don't recommend that either. Just the fact that you had to pull glass shards out of a dog's mouth and you know, she probably doesn't want you opening her mouth. I'm like, that just sounds miserable. All. It was terrible. I never would have thought that that would
1: have happened, but thankfully we were able to clean her up and she was fine. And thankfully from like, cause I counted kind of to make sure she hadn't eaten any of it. Like she had just chomped down on it and like spit it out. So she hadn't actually eaten the glass shards, which was really good. But yeah, like having to get it out of like her kind of like down in her gums and stuff. It was just not fun for anyone. So um, yeah, needless to say, we are a, a plastic Christmas ornament family for sure. I do have a couple sentimental things we keep higher up on the tree or that may just be for later on in life when we don't have, have animals that, you know, decide that the tree
0: is um, something they can go after. I have a tradition or I've started a tradition. Everywhere we go, we get an ornament. And I realized that, hey, with a baby, maybe not a good idea to buy anything breakable. So I really am getting into the wood ornaments.
1: Yes, wood ornaments are great. Until your dog thinks they're a chew toy. That, that is what we ran into but I do love wood ornaments because I got some last year and put them high up on our tree and I think they look really nice but yes I think f- kid friendly would definitely be the wooden ornaments and you're probably thinking at this point why are we talking about Christmas trees and everything it's that time of year right but what I thought we could talk about today because I currently live in Germany and a really big part of I would say like German culture in general is kind of their drinking during the holiday season is a very common thing to do here. You have Glühwein, which is like this hot cider wine that you drink at Christmas markets and stuff. And then you have so many different beers that you could think of. So today I thought we could actually talk about the world's oldest brewery, which happens
0: to have been started in the Bavaria region of Germany. Oh, that's interesting. So, Megan, tell me more. What is your cool fun fact? So,
1: I will actually be talking about the Stefana Brewery. Any people that German is your first language, I apologize if I did not say that correctly. I am attempting to learn German. or a non-German speaker, your language is not easy, my friend. So, Stefana actually started in 1725, by St. Colbinin, along with 12 companions, and they actually founded the Benedictine monastery on Nuremberg Hill. Then, in 1768, the first hop cultivation was actually documented, and a hop garden was nearby. And actually, they were obligated to pay a tie. To, of 10% to the monastery. So the monastery ended up getting the hop from the nearby um, individuals that were cultivating it, which would later on lead into this becoming the first brewery. Interesting. Yeah, right? So unfortunately, in 955, the Hungarians actually destroyed the monastery, and the Benedict monks had to rebuild their monastery. So unfortunate, but... As in a lot of European history, there was a lot of war, a lot of fighting over land, and this just happened to have happened. In 1040, beer brewing officially began at the Heistaffen, um, the year Abbot Arnold successfully obtained a license to brew and sell.
0: Oh, Okay. So, yeah. So, between 1085
1: and 1463, the monastery burned down four more times. <laughs> What? Yeah, the monastery burned down completely four times and was destroyed or depopulized by three plagues, various famines, and a great earthquake. So in total, they've had to rebuild
0: this monastery five times. Sorry, I just have to jump in. My uh, accounting background is kind of coming in, but 1040 (laughs) is the same form for individual tax returns just saying in case anyone wanted to remember how they would remember they began brewing beer was in 1040 because you can remember the tax return <laughs> cool one <I'm> back y'all <laughs> yes i'm such a nerd i know yeah that's okay that's okay
1: whatever helps you remember if you ever get this this would be a great trivia question and i know i've seen it before is uh where's the World's oldest brewery located. When did it start? 1040 in Germany. But yeah, so poor thing, burnt down four times and was destroyed by the Hungarians once. So excuse me, five times total. And then in this is probably my my favorite cool fun fact, and we'll get into it, which is in 1516, Duke Wilhelm IV of Bavaria issued. The Bavarian Purity Law. Do you have any idea what the Bavarian Purity Law is, Christina?
0: I don't, but I'm going to take an educated guess here. Go for it. So, it is my understanding that for certain alcohols to be considered certain alcohols, for example, scotch has to be made in Scotland, so I'm assuming if we're talking about beer— that it has to be made with it has to be made in germany with a certain amount of ingredients so the purity law is coming into play that is my educated guess and that is a very good educated
1: guess the duke when he issued this bavarian purity law it's only barley hops and water are allowed to be used in bavarian German beers, and there's just a German purity law out there, so it's very common in the United States to put corn products into alcohol, and I am allergic to corn, therefore, I do not partake in most drinks that they make in the United States, so it was very refreshing when we moved to Germany that I can now partake in beer and not be afraid that it's going to make me deathly ill oh, well, it's good so and I mean this is. This, this may upset some people, I think that German beer tastes better than American beer. At least the American beer that I have personally had, I think that German beer tastes better. And there's a lot more options out there. So that is, that is my hot take, I think, for for the episode but yeah so you have the the Bavarian purity law came in in 1516 and they still adhere to that law to this day so one of the most popular festivals that happens every year is actually Oktoberfest and at Oktoberfest they actually only serve local beer to the Munich area oh that's cool so yeah, I thought that was kind of a cool fun fact is that they still uh, abide by these purity laws that were set back in the 1500s. So we're going to move forward in time a little bit to 1803. And this is actually when the dissolution of the uh Monastery. So the monastery was dissolved on March 24th, and all the possession and rights of the monastery were transferred to the Bavarian state. However... This did not affect the brewery, and the brewery acted under the secular supervision of the royal holdings at Schleisheim. And then in 1852, the Central Agriculture School moved from Schleisheim to Weich Steffen. And with it the Bavarian brewing students. So in 1895 the school became an academy and was elevated in 1919 to the University of Agriculture and Brewing, which then was incorporated into the Technical University of Munich in 1930. And this kind of developed into the center of the world when it comes to brewing technology. And the best brewers in the entire world still come to school here to learn brewing techniques, which I thought was a fun fact is that if you want to go and learn the best modern and I would say old time brewing techniques, you would actually want to go here to learn these techniques. And they actually have degrees in them. They have brewing degrees that are specific to holding true to the Bavarian purity laws, but just learning how to make the best brew when it comes to beer, which I think was really cool.
0: Yeah, no, that's really interesting. So
1: yeah, so in 1921, the brewery actually got its name of the Bavarian State Brewery V. Heistaffen. And since in 1923, it has used the Great Seal of the Bavarian State as its corporate logo. Oh, nice. Today, even though it is the oldest brewery in the world today, it is actually one of the most modern brewery when it comes to the techniques that it uses. And it combines tradition and state-of-the-art science to make top-quality beer. And hundreds of brewmasters have learned their craft at the Stefan Act as ambassadors spreading their knowledge throughout the world and thus contributing to the unique reputation of the Bavarian State Brewery Stefan. So I thought that was really cool that the oldest brewery in the world was actually started by a bunch of monks at a monastery. It was burned down, you know, it th- five times basically and had to start from the ground up and was able to become this legacy that is there in the area there's people from all over the world that travel to this brewery just to be able to try this beer Um, and I'm actually hoping in a couple of a week weeks we'll actually be going to Bavaria so that we may be able to stop by and do a tour and actually kind of see how they make the beer and everything because I just think that's really cool the history that's behind this brewery I personally would have never associated monks with starting a brewery and I was enlightened by that so I thought that was pretty cool but that is kind of my cool fun facts when it comes to the oldest brewery in the world and beer now Christina do you have any cool fun
0: facts for me I do. I actually do. So, for all of our listeners, I am not a really big drinker. I'm not a really big beer drinker. I'm not really a big wine drinker. I love me some chocolate milk. So, yes, so you know, when we were doing the whole champagne toast at our wedding, I was really wanting a bottle of chocolate milk rather than champagne. And I might have drank chocolate milk before my wedding rather than beer or any kind of alcohol so so you're like what is a really not an alcohol person talk about well we're actually going on sunday to go see the clydesdale horses the budweiser clydesdale's horses so i figured why not talk about the clydesdales so the cool fun fact that i have is that the clydesdale horses were actually a gift to celebrate the end of prohibition in 1933 oh wow so budweiser was actually started in 1876 august a bush senior was gifted six Clydesdale horses to celebrate the end of prohibition in 1933 by his two sons and of course, the company being pretty savvy, I mean, obviously they were able to sustain or they were able to make it through prohibition. They were like, hey, how do we market to a bunch of people? And they were like, oh my gosh, let's use these Clydesdale's horses that you just got. And you know what? Let's throw a wagon behind them. So that's actually how the company started using the Clydesdale's horses. So They had a horse-drawn beer wagon that they believe would be a good marketing tool, and they actually put this into place when they were sent to an event in New York City in order to celebrate the end of Prohibition. So they had these six Clydesdales horses, they had the beer wagon, they're making their way through New York, actually going to the Empire State Building, and of course all of this was drawing thousands of people to these Clydesdales horses. So talk about a marketing stunt. I think they nailed that one on the head. So the same team of horses actually traveled through New England and then to the mid-Atlantic states before it stopped in Washington, D.C. And this is where I think is a really cool, fun fact. So once these horses were in D.C. on April 1933, the Clydesdale team reenacted the delivery of one of the first cases of Budweiser's to Franklin D. Roosevelt.
1: Oh, wow.
0: So they reenacted... It for FDR, which I thought was really cool a really cool fun fact. Another cool thing that I found out is that shortly after the Clydesdales were introduced, the team of six actually became a team of eight. We should probably put a couple more horses there. Then, of course, everything needs a mascot, especially other animals, I guess. So the Dalmatian became the official mascot of the Clydesdales horses and actually travels with them throughout the whole entire country when they go to different visits. So you'll always see a Dalmatian on the beer wagon with the driver. That's so cool. Yeah, so I thought that was kind of fun. And then a couple other cool fun facts that, you know, I couldn't obviously put into the story was that the horses get exceptional care when they're out on the road. I mean, you're talking about teams of groomers and teams of like dietitians. I mean, whatever these horses need, The Budweiser company is on top of it. They're making sure that these horses are taken with the utmost care. I've actually been around the Clydesdale horses before, and I was very impressed. And they're very, I mean, top-notch service and everything for these horses. So these horses are very much beloved. So, Megan, do you know how many pounds day they eat? I have no idea,
1: but they're massive horses. I have seen Clydesdales before. They're absolutely beautiful horses if I wasn't so allergic I wish I could get more up close and personal with them I would have to guess maybe like 30 pounds worth of uh, hay a day Megan that's really cute
0: no (laughs) 50 to 60 pounds a day of just Just, hay of just hay that's that's crazy yeah so one horse will eat up to 20 to 25 quarts of whole Mm -hmm. grain okay that's grain then minerals and vitamins 50 to 60 pounds of hay, and then up to 30 gallons of water on a warm day. Wow, that's a lot. That's an expensive horse to take care of, for sure. Yeah. Just imagine putting 30 gallons of milk in your fridge, and that's how much one of these horses can drink on a really warm day. That's insane. That's a lot. Yeah. I thought it was pretty crazy. And then when it actually comes times for different, like, appearances and travels, they actually don't have eight Clydesdale horses. They have ten now. So they are with, obviously, the famous red and white and gold beer wagon and then other equipment that they need in order to be transported. And all this equipment gets transported in three 50-foot tractor trailers. That's a lot. Yeah, I think it would be kind of cool to be the truck driver, though, for the Clydesdale horses. I think that would be kind of fun. And I know that their tractor trailers are, you know, state of the art for all these horses to make sure that they're as comfortable as humanly possible. So I think that's a great thing. And then this one kind of blew my mind. But obviously, they wear the different harnesses, you know, for the beer wagon. Mm -hmm. So these harnesses are actually handcrafted, which I didn't know. Which I thought was a really cool fun fact. But do you know how much approximately one of these weighs? I have no idea, honestly.
1: I would assume that they're really, really heavy. Because you're saying they're handcrafted, they're ornate. I would say like
0: 75
1: pounds, maybe?
0: You're closer than last time, kind of. (laughs) Okay, hit me. 130 pounds. Wow,
1: that's a lot of weight.
0: That's a lot. That's crazy. So I thought that was a very interesting, cool, fun fact. And it's cool that they handcraft these. This one I didn't really think of, but it makes a lot of sense. So obviously the Clydesdales are actually given short names such as like Duke or Mark or Bud. And the reason why they do this is so that the driver can give commands to the horses during the performances. And it's easy to say and they know who they're talking to. So it's not, you know, it's not like marshmallow. Hey, you need to make a right term. It's mark, turn right, or whatever the command is. It's so that it's easier and it's very precise and accurate. So I thought that was a really cool fun fact. And then the last thing that I wanted to talk to you about the Budweiser Clydesdale's horses is that their horseshoes actually measure 20 inches from end to end, and they weigh about five pounds each.
1: Holy cow.
0: Yeah. Can you imagine being the farrier for those horses and having to make a 20-inch horseshoe that weighs five pounds and getting them off of them and putting them on them? Obviously, you know, they probably are used to it because these horses are bred. But so they're, I I mean, they're used to it. So I actually did a quick Google and
1: they're between 17 and 2,200 pounds.
0: Yeah, so if the Clydesdale weighs two thousand pounds, that's a ton.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And for those of you out there who might not know like the difference between the Clydesdales in terms of size versus a normal horse, a a quote unquote regular horse is normally somewhere between eight hundred and a thousand pounds and Clydesdale can be as heavy as 1,700 to 2,000 pounds, you know, which is uh, such a, it's double, it's basically a horse that's double its size, which is just kind of crazy to think about that like that big of a horse
0: has been bred. But yeah, so that's kind of my cool fun facts. And that's kind of my story of the Clydesdales. Well, thank you for enlightening us about the Clydesdales. I think that's actually really cool to kind of know
1: the history behind them.
0: Yeah. And the fact that they were actually a a present for making it through prohibition. Yeah just kind of funny when you think about it. That's a pretty good present. Yeah, I know, right? Think about it. I would, I wouldn't mind a couple horses. You know, especially when I was little. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Every little girl, you want a horse at some point. Yeah, exactly. I never got my little. I never got a horse. No, I got lessons,
1: and then I had to stop taking lessons when I became so allergic that it was no longer a good option for me to be around horses. <laughs>
0: My mom and my sister and I actually took lessons together, so
1: it was really fun. That's cool. Yeah, I did lessons when I was I won them at like a school auction. My mom had won them for me.
0: Oh, nice! That sounds like so much fun. And I did them. And then
1: my aunt, growing up, she had a horse named Sabado, and we would take Sabado down to the creek and we would make Sabado take a bath in the creek basically and that's the only way I was able to ride him afterwards was if we soaked him in the creek which he loved because it was like really hot in the summertime so we'd go down there he'd get a bath in the creek and then we'd get out and we'd ride him like bareback back up to the house yeah it was definitely some definitely some good memories so but minus the being super allergic at different ends I do remember that that was not fun and that yeah I, I wish I could grow out of that allergy, but unfortunately I think that's a lifelong one I got. I
0: don't know what you're not allergic to. Yeah. I would I think there's more things you're allergic to than you're not allergic to. Oh, a thousand percent. Like so for anyone out there
1: who has severe allergies, I relate to you wholeheartedly. When I get the prick test done, my entire back lights up. Um, it is not a pleasant experience. I also have several food allergies, so I sympathize with those out there that um are kind of allergic to the outdoors. And I love being outdoors, which kind of makes it a little bit more difficult. But, you know, that's what allergy meds are for and shots and whatnot. So it's fine.
0: You're a better person than I am. I would be like, yeah, no, no, thank you. But, yeah. Well, anyway, listeners, thanks for tuning in. Let us know your topic suggestions. Please email us at coolfunfactpod at gmail.com. Thanks. Bye. Bye.